Now it is a little warm up here this morning. I wonder if uh, one of the men uh, present could check the thermostat and if you're not too cold already, I'd appreciate to be turned down just a little. Uh, we are somewhat elevated at this end of the church and it is unusually hot here today. Now let us turn to the scriptures of God's word in the book of Acts as we read uh, Acts 15 verse 30 through to Acts 16 verse 5. The end of Acts 15 from verse 30. The men, that is the delegates from the council of Jerusalem who were bearing, do you remember, the letter with its requirement and decrees to be sent to Gentile churches, the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending time there, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, and whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. May God indeed bless to our understanding this portion of his living and abiding word. Now, as you can see from the reading this morning, we are returning together to the book of Acts today after being for one Sunday in the book of Galatians chapter 2, where you remember we read of Peter being snared in a serious sin. Peter, one of the leading figures in the council of Jerusalem that has been described in the early verses of Acts chapter 15. And we had seen last Sunday morning his exhibition of folly as he championed the cause of the Judaizers at first. And we considered Paul's example of fidelity as he alone stood up to Peter and rebuked that folly and was God's instrument in bringing 
that eminent servant of Christ, the Apostle Peter, back into the correct way, the orthodox way of believing what was right and no longer being led astray by others. And so we examined, finally, you remember, Peter's experience of forgiveness. Now, all of this should make the 15th chapter of Acts the more remarkable because we see in it not only the triumph of God's truth, but the triumph of God's grace in the life even of outstanding men who were snared in serious sin and by God's grace alone were delivered and released from it into his service again. The basis of the faith had been wonderfully preserved. The new Gentile believers in their multitudinous congregations throughout the Roman Empire were protected from serious danger and the unity of the church above all else had been most thoroughly and scripturally safeguarded. But this morning we've come to the ending of that chapter and I must tell you that we're not through with Acts 15 until we look this morning at the remaining two paragraphs from verses 30 through 41 and into the beginning indeed of chapter 16. What do we see there? Beloved, we see men pressing on. We see men falling out. We see men, the servants of God, building up the church of God because of what had taken place in that remarkable council of the early church that we know as the Council of Jerusalem. They are pressing on. There is a change of scene. Once again, in accord with Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the borders of the church are widening and expanding, just as Jesus said, first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. And in this portion, we are beginning to see this morning and will more fully see next Sunday how the gospel left the shores of the continent of Asia and for the very first time as these men pressed on in the service of Christ came officially into the continent of Europe. We see men falling out. There's a change of companions for Paul, no longer Barnabas, but now Silas and the young Timothy picked up in the city of Lystra, the scene of Paul's stoning, joins him evidently in place of John Mark, whom Paul would not agree to take. And Luke begins to come in to the apostolic group as we read in chapter 16, verse 10, as the famous we passages of Luke begin. No longer they went here and there, but we went here and there and did such things, indicating in verse 10 of Acts 16 that Luke, the very author of the book of Acts, was at times with the apostle Paul in his ministry. There is a falling out among men. There is a building up of the church too. And we'll look at that in more detail as we go on. Well then, a change of scene, a change of companions, a change of activity. 
This is how that great and blessed chapter, the 15th of Acts, ends for us this morning. Let's take time to look at it together. It's so important. Let's deal, first of all, with the subject of building up. And if you will look in preparation for the exposition at verses 30 through 32, and verse 36, and verse 41 of Acts 15, you'll see precisely what I mean. And into chapter 16, verse 5. Verse 36 is just a sampling of this. Some time later, says Luke, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord. And so, my dear friends, inauspiciously, quietly, without the sounding of fanfares or trumpets of any kind, the second great missionary journey of the early church is about to commence. Now look at these verses. What they teach us is that after a further period of instruction by the apostle and his companions at Antioch, Paul evidently felt a great and burning and growing desire inside himself to revisit the churches he had already planted in the first missionary journey in Asia Minor, in what we call today the country of Turkey. You remember our exploration of that great missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, a month or more ago. And so he could not remain, he felt, in Antioch anymore. In his mind's eye, we may conjecture, he saw these new churches of the province of Galatia and Pamphylia and other provinces suffering persecution for the name of Christ. He was aware now but those Judaizing teachers against which he had co uh, contended at Antioch and in the Council of Jerusalem were busy spreading their erroneous teaching in the very churches that he and Barnabas, by the grace of God, had established through that part of the Roman Empire. Facing the fierceness of persecution, in danger of being unsettled in their very foundations, by wrong teaching, he felt that burning inward conviction that he must go to them again. And so, overlooking for a moment, just for a moment, the intervening verses about the disagreement between himself and Barnabas, you see him setting out with concern for the churches in Syria and Cilicia. Look at verse 41. That's Paul's own home territory, his home heath, if you like. The, the very situation of his city, Tarsus, in Cilicia. He's going to go through those regions so familiar to him, probably at the season of the year when the apostles left Antioch, full of blooming flowers, a very beautiful and lovely countryside. And Paul was leaving to strengthen the churches he'd established there on 
through the famous Cilician Gates in the Taurus Mountains to the cities of Derby and Lystra, the scene of Paul's previous labors, the scene of his suffering where he was almost stoned to death in the city of Lystra, on then to the other churches of Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia, and everywhere he went, his purpose to strengthen the churches. Now look you, this visitation of young newly established churches was the start of a great missionary journey. There's no fanfare about it, no trumpet sound, just casually we read there that Paul said to Barnabas, let us go and visit them again. And something very important, beloved, is happening here. We see, in other words, a vital aspect of Paul's missionary strategy. In other words, true biblical evangelism and missionary enterprise is always to be followed up by consolidation of those churches through the instruction and the organizing of the converts. Let me say it again. What was Paul's initial purpose in setting out from Antioch? To build up the churches he had established in his first missionary journey. Look at verse 36. That we might visit the brothers, he says to Barnabas, and the root word in Greek of the English word visit, the Greek verb episkeptomai, literally is the word that gives us the episcopate. Now, we're not an Episcopal church. We're a Presbyterian church. And in a sense, our pastors and our elders are the episcopacy, the oversight. But this is what the word visit means here. The function of spiritual oversight of the flock of God. The function of authority over them. But loving pastoral ministry to them in the context of that authority. Let us visit the brothers. We could translate it. Let us episcopize them. And the same emphasis is made. Look. In verse 31 at the end, in verse 41, and in verse 5 of chapter 16. And it's very significant that in each of the three paragraphs that we read this morning, and in each of the three places in Antioch, in Syria and Cilicia, in Asia Minor, we have the same statement about what Paul was doing in the church on this second missionary journey. What was he doing? He was strengthening the churches along with his helpers. Look at verse 32. In Antioch, Judas and Silas spoke the word strengthening the brothers. In verse 41, in Syria and Cilicia, Paul and Silas went about strengthening the churches. In verse 5 of chapter 16, as they went on through Galatia, the churches were what? Strengthened. And the first two verbs in Greek are the same verbs. Episterizo. 
And it's a verb that has already been used, you notice, in chapter 14, verse 22. Just turn back to it for a moment. Chapter 14, verse 22. When Paul and Barnabas began to retrace their steps in the first missionary journey, remember, they went back through the congregations, strengthening, verse 22, the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Now, what is happening is very interesting. It's almost a technical word for establishing and consolidating Christian individuals and Christian churches. And there's a different word, but a cognate word, a related word, in verse 5 of chapter 16, the verb stereo to make strong or firm. It's interesting. It gives us our word today, steroids. Why do athletes take steroids? In order to strengthen their muscles, to perform better athletically in the arena and on the running track and in the Olympic pool. Now, they shouldn't do. But you read your newspapers and you know that it's one of the problems in athletics today. And it comes from this Greek word stereo, to strengthen, to make firm and strong. And the point I'm making, beloved, is that biblically part of missionary strategy is not that we must always think of missionaries going out to break new ground. How often do we say, oh, he's going out to such and such, a new virgin country, to preach the gospel and establish a church as a missionary? And how often do so many of our Baptist friends say, oh, we sent out a mission team into such and such a country, and there were so many converts in this lightning gospel campaign. And there is the beginning and the middle and end of missionary strategy so often today. And I want to say to you that the lesson for us in this first division of the sermon this morning is that building up is still a vital biblical part of true missionary endeavor. We should be as concerned, beloved, to send out pastors and teaching elders to established churches as a result of missionary work as we have been concerned in the first place to send the missionaries that established them there. And so much of what I believe we see called as missionary work today that is nothing other than sending men out to count heads in a lightning gospel campaign and leave them, whatever it is, is not biblical missionary endeavor. It's as though Paul was recalling Proverbs 27 verse 23. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. And be careful in your attention to your herds or in the Song of Songs, the wonderful words of Solomon, let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded and if their blossoms have expanded. Isn't that beautiful? That's just what Paul and Silas were about to do. 
No, my friends, New Testament evangelism does not consist in counting heads, but having seen men and women gloriously come to faith in Christ, to encourage them to go on and on and on still further in the Christian way. And that's why at Antioch they were strengthening the brothers. And in Syria and Cilicia they were strengthening the churches. And in the churches of Galatia we read in verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And I say to you, if you want to see a strong church still, it will come only where there are well-nourished believers growing in grace daily and leading in turn to strong evangelism, a church that is growing daily because there has been biblical building up. Let me ask you this morning before we leave this point, what's happening in your life at Westminster Church? God have mercy upon you if you are only a sermon taster. We should desire to be present at every occasion in this congregation where the word is being ministered. Why? Because there is a direct correlation, my friends, between being strengthened in the faith and growing daily in numbers. Building up. Well then, let's leave that point there, much as I'm tempted to say more upon it. And look at the second thing in this passage. There is not only a building up, but there is a falling out in verses 36 to 40. It's one of the saddest events in the story of the early church. Here are Paul and Barnabas, that strong missionary team. I suggested to you last Sunday, probably the strongest friends whose biographies are recounted in the New Testament scriptures. The very best of friends, now divided, sundered from one another's fellowship and company, separated and going in opposite directions. And the very Greek word that is used to describe their division is an uncommonly strong one. You know, it only occurs once more in the New Testament, in Revelation 6, verse 14, where John describes the very heavens and the earth moving away, being rolled up together. And the very word to describe their disagreement in Greek is the word that gives us our term a paroxysm. And literally translated, there was a paroxysm, verse 39. They had such sharp disagreement. There was a paroxysm. And they parted company. And as I say, that word parted company is used of the heavens and the earth being taken away. Now the issue apparently was small enough as you look at it, over whether to take John Mark with them, the young man, the cousin of Barnabas, you remember, who had started out with them on the first missionary journey in Acts 13, but when they reached the coast of Pamphylia, for whatever reason, John Mark left them there. 
Acts 13, verse 13. And there are two questions I want to answer this morning for you. Why is this event recorded here? And secondly, which of the two men were right? Have you ever thought, which of the two men were right in this quarrel? Or were they both right? Why is it recorded here? Well, it's a very important answer, I believe, which helps us to understand what is really happening and therefore to answer the second question, who was right? Because I believe that one of them was right and the other was very badly wrong. Now, you must have noticed, have you, that the chapter which began with a disagreement over doctrine ends with a disagreement over men. Did you notice that? And what does this tell you? That Satan is in this, beloved. Satan, the devil, the arch enemy of the gospel, is behind both disagreements. And having failed in the first disagreement at the beginning of the chapter to set the church upside down by introducing false doctrine having failed in that first attempt to prevent the glorious advance of the gospel, he now counterattacks at the end of the chapter. And he does so with a disagreement, not about doctrine, but about men. Beloved, he never gives in, does he? He never ceases in his determined effort to undermine the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should take a lesson from his book. We give in so easily. When things get tough and difficult, we say, well, I've had enough. I'm giving up. He never gives up. He never rests, not for a moment. And that is why the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas is here. You see, whenever the gospel is advancing, even in our day, whenever we are about to undertake some great and significant enterprise for God in our own lives, in proportion to the importance of the thing we are doing, we may expect a counterattack of Satan. And that's what's behind this episode. And you see, you don't look at it at the human level. I've read so many commentators on this passage, and the most of them look at it at the human level. And what you'll find that what I'm saying to you this morning, you won't get in commentaries. They say it was a personal disagreement. And they say they were both right and they were both wrong, and I don't believe it. Because this is not something that's happening at the human level at all. It's not Paul's preference over Barnabas's preference. But we need to go much further back and see behind it the arch enemy of God's church and God's people going about like a roaring lion, having been failed and discomforted in the first instance, striking afresh. And that's precisely why I believe that Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong. Now, who was right? The second question. Well, as I said, there was a paroxysm, a sharp contention. The Greek word, again, is very strong. It doesn't mean a friendly quarrel. There were heated emotions involved in this. There was probably voices raised 
It was a very strong disagreement. And evidently they felt it was a matter of principle, as indeed I believe it was. Now how often Satan attempts to overthrow God's choicest servants when other things have failed through the temper and disposition of their colleagues. And what I believe was happening here is that Satan was using Barnabas here to compel Paul to do something that at that stage and at that time would have proved disastrous for them on their later missionary journey. And in reinforcing of what I am saying, I believe that Timothy, whom we read about at the beginning of chapter 16, was brought in as God's gracious provision to supply for John Mark, who was unsuitable. And Paul is vindicated there. But Barnabas, I believe, should have recognized several things. For one, that the closeness of blood relationship between him and his cousin did not put him in a position where he could reach an unbiased judgment. In other words, he should have realized that if anyone's judgment was clouded, it was his judgment. Here was his own cousin. And he didn't want to see him wronged. And also, you know, Barnabas should have remembered something else. Do you remember from Galatians 2 last Sunday morning? I hope you do that already he had made an unsound judgment only weeks before in the case of joining Peter against Paul and being counted with the circumcision party. Do you remember the almost bitter words of Paul in Galatians 2? Their hypocrisy was so great that even Barnabas was carried away by them. Now that should have made him cautious. And he should have remembered thirdly that Paul, after all, had been marked out by the Holy Ghost in the first missionary journey as the leader of the mission of the church to the Gentiles. Now I think there is confirmation of what I'm telling you. Because if you look there in the account, uh, which verse is it? Verse uh, 39, verse 40 rather. It says that Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of God. Paul, commended by the church at Antioch. And those are the very same words, my dear friends, used by the church at Antioch in Acts 14 at the end of the chapter when Paul and Barnabas came back from the first missionary journey to the church that had commended them to the grace of God for this mission. And the very fact that the believers at Antioch now commended Paul and Silas to the grace of God for the work that was then before them in this chapter shows to me beyond any shadow of doubt the church knew that Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong. Now let me say in summary that clearly this passage is not a justification for our quarrels. Don't go away this morning and say, because it's in Scripture, I can get up and quarrel with the pastor. Please don't do that. But whisper it softly. If they had arguments, these gifted men of God, 
Is there not hope for us in our disagreements? But in the providence of God, look you what happened. The outcome you see because God is sovereign and his grace triumphs even in the midst of strong feelings and strong arguments between brothers. The outcome was two missionary journeys and enterprises instead of one going in opposite directions to the island of Cyprus, Barnabas taking John Mark, and Paul taking Silas, going into the regions of Syria and Cilicia to the northeast. And not only that, in a few years' time, we read in Colossians 4.10 and 2 Timothy 4, chapter, uh, verse 11, that Mark was the subject of a friendly word of commendation from the Apostle Paul. Bring Mark, he said, because he is useful to me. And the point that I am making is this, that Satan's stratagem failed to create division and discord now among men, the leading choice men by which the gospel would be taken to the Gentiles. And this perilous situation turned out for good. Cyprus was evangelized, and the competent Silas was taken into the service of the great apostle Paul. And so you see, even in these circumstances, God is sovereign. Now, I leave you with this because I have no time to go into it. Can you think, in your knowledge of missionary his history, of other divisions between individuals and within churches that have led not to the frustration of the preaching of the gospel, but to the multiplication of it, just as here? I can think of a number where missionary societies have come head-on together in conflict, wanting to put men into the same field. And in God's all-wise sovereignty, instead of the church being divided, two mission fields have been served, and the church has been built gloriously to the glory of God, falling out in which God overruled. Now, thirdly, and this is very quick as I finish, pressing on in verses six, uh, one through six of, uh, one through five, I should say, of chapter 16. Briefly, there are just two things here because I'm going to return to this passage and the other verses up to verse 10 next Sunday morning. Two things here. As these men went forth, united Silas and Paul, they were heartened to see how the new churches were flourishing, that there was a real work of grace going on, as you see in verse 5, even though Paul had been absent. Now that's the first thing, isn't it? The Holy Spirit was not absent from the early churches any more than he is absent from his people today. Yet abroad in our world is the idea almost that you've got to have a certain minister with a certain personality and certain gifts and a certain session with certain gifts and certain deacons with other gifts in order for the church to survive and thrive. And what I want to tell you is that the New Testament view of the church is no such thing. These congregations had been left by themselves with elders appointed and a government established, but no apostle in sight to lead them on into the deep things of God. And what happened? In verse 5, 
the churches had already been strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And look at the beginning of the chapter. Out of one of those churches came a young man who became the apostle's right-hand servant, a son in the faith, Timothy. And the obvious background is strong churches because the Holy Spirit had not left the churches to themselves. It indicates, doesn't it, the inward intensive spiritual growth of the early church corresponding to the outward extensive growth of the church. They were strengthened in the faith inwardly and so they grew in numbers daily outwardly. Isn't it striking? Isn't it challenging? Daily the church was growing. What are you doing as you are being strengthened, I trust, under this ministry to let there be an outflow to others? Would to God we could say in this congregation, not only are we being strengthened inwardly, but there is an outflow so that the church is growing daily. That's your task, very largely, not mine. I'm here as an aider and an abetter to that task furnishing you with the gifts and the tools and the equipment to do it, but it's yours to perform. Well, the second thing, as I finish, is look at Paul's companions. It's a very interesting lesson. Barnabas has been replaced by Silas. He's 100% Jewish. And he is supplemented by young Timothy, obviously the Lord's replacement for the unsuitable John Mark, unsuitable at that point but later useful. And Timothy is a half-caste, half-Jewish and half-Greek. And then if you look on in verse 10 of chapter 16, the we passage, the doctor Luke joins them, the Gentile. So you have a 100% Jew, Silas. You have a half-caste boy, partly Jewish and partly Greek. And you have a full-blooded Gentile joining the Apostle Paul. And this makes for the apostolic team of four. What a team! But mark you well, race had nothing to do with the gospel in the early church. A Jew, a Gentile, and a half-caste could all work together and cooperate. Now what does that say to you and to me today? We should not stress, beloved, national churches. The church of the USA, the church in Scotland, the church in France. What we should be stressing is international churches. Especially in this day of global travel and global emigration of great numbers of people from their own homelands and native countries to take up residence elsewhere. We should say there is no color bar in the church of God. The church is colorblind. Did you know that? And we should with all our strength ensure that that is always the case. And the evidence is here in the New Testament.
Well then, let me finish. I've gone over my time for which I apologize. There's been a building up. There's been a falling out. There's been a pressing on. Oh, my dear friends, let's learn from these lessons of Acts 15, that great council that established the faith and protected the new Gentile converts. And this chapter that enabled these outstanding servants of God to persevere in their work. May we persevere in ours to the glory of God as they did. Building up, falling out, pressing on. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful this morning for this passage. Again, we ask, apply it to our hearts. May the word fall into receptive soil. For Jesus' sake, amen.